In a book called Disciple, Juan Carlos Ortiz imagines what it might be like to negotiate with Jesus on the cost of the pearl of great price. We say, I want this pearl. How much is it? Well, the seller says, it's very expensive. But how much, we ask? Well, a very large amount. Well, do you think I could buy it? Oh, oh, of course, everyone can buy it. But didn't you say it was very expensive? Yes. Well, how much is it? Everything you have, says the seller. We make up our minds. All right, I'll buy it, we say. Well, what do you have? He wants to know. Let's write it down. Well, um, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good. $10,000. What else? That's all. That's all I have. Nothing more? Well, I have a few dollars here in my pocket. How much? We start digging. Well, let's see. 30, 40, 60, 80, $120. That's fine. What else do you have? Well, nothing. That's all. Where do you live? He's still probing. In my house. Yes, I have a house. The house too then. He writes that down. You mean I have to live in my camper? You have a camper? That too. What else? I'll have to sleep in my car. You have a car? Two of them. Both become mine, both cars. What else? Well, you already have my money, my house, my camper, my cars. What more do you want? Are you alone in this world? No, I have a wife and two children. Oh, yes, your wife and children too. What else? I have nothing left. I'm left alone now. Suddenly the seller exclaims, Oh, I almost forgot. You yourself too. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, and you too. Then he goes on. Now listen, I will allow you to use all these things for the time being. But don't forget that they are mine just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because now I am the owner. That idea that that God owns everything is is really a countercultural idea, isn't it? I mean, we have grown up in a capitalistic society in which we have been taught that hard work yields financial benefits, and so the money and the possessions that we have, we have earned, and we have the right to do with them whatever we please. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In 1 Chronicles 29, King David leads the people of Israel in giving sacrificially to a building project. Their goal is to build a temple in the city of Jerusalem. And after David offers his gift and tribal and family leaders offer their gifts, Freely and wholeheartedly, the text says, that after that offering is made, David leads the people in praising God. He says, praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. 
Do you agree with that? Does everything in heaven and on earth belong to God? I think most of us would say, yeah, I, I do. I, I, I believe that. And you, you know also that Jesus wants us to personalize that truth, don't you? In, in fact, he says in Luke 14, 33, any of you who does not give up everything you have, literally all of your own possessions, you cannot be my disciple. That's really the truth that Juan Carlos Ortiz was getting at. See, we are taught to think, I own my stuff. But followers of Jesus say, God owns my stuff. But it's, it's the last few sentences of his story, the part where the, the new owner of our stuff spells out the implications of his ownership that I think misses the mark. Let me read again what Ortiz imagines to be the voice of the Lord. I will allow you to use all these things for the time being, but don't forget that they are mine just as you are, and whenever I need, I, I need any of them, you must give them up because now I am the owner. See, I don't think that just acknowledging that God reserves the right to use His stuff however He wants and whenever He wants goes far enough. In fact, I know it doesn't. And the reason I know that is because of the story that Jesus told His disciples just two chapters after He claimed ownership of all their possessions. So it's right here in in Luke 16, right there starting in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg Oh, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. And then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now look at this, verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. I have to tell you, the first time I read that story, I got nauseous. I could not believe that Jesus would ever commend a dishonest person. In fact, I was so sure that Jesus would never say anything like this that I thought someone was playing a joke on me and had slipped me a fake Bible. I really did. I looked around. I said, I got to find another cop. I, had, I found another Bible and I opened it up to the same passage and, and sure enough, it said the same thing. And so, so I had to figure out why Jesus would say such a thing. And eventually I realized, first of all, that it wasn't Jesus who was commending the manager. It was a character in the story. It was the wealthy master. Now, I know that we think that if a character in a story that Jesus tells represents God, that that person ought to be at least somewhat godlike. But it wasn't unusual for Jesus to use a storytelling device 
that is just foreign to us, in which he uses a not-so-good guy, like an amoral master, or an unjust judge, or a sleepy friend, or an evil parent, to contrast rather than compare people with God. And second, the point of the story is not to commend dishonesty. It's to commend shrewdness, prudence, foresight, ingenuity. Look at the moral of the story in the last part of verse 8. This is Jesus telling us why he told the story. He said, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. See, we may pride ourselves on being more righteous than non-Christians, but Jesus says that when it comes to street smarts, they can run circles around us. Yes, we should be as innocent as doves, but we should also be as shrewd as snakes. But shrewd in what way? Specifically, well, in the way that we manage God's stuff. See, it's not enough to say, God owns my stuff, crucial as that is. There's another really sobering fact that I must acknowledge. I manage God's stuff. See, God has entrusted a certain amount of his stuff to me. He has entrusted a certain amount of his stuff to you. We're to manage it on his behalf, and he expects us to use it in such a way that it serves his interests. Just imagine, hard as this may be for you, that you are wealthy enough to hire an investment manager. Okay? You entrust, maybe not all, but put part of your portfolio to him. His job is to make your money grow. And you check in with him after a few months. Say, how's it going? He says, oh, great, great. You probe. Well, what have you been doing with my money? He says, I've been buying stuff for me. You say, well, have you done anything that serves my interests? He says, well, no, because this is the first time you've called me. I've been checking my emails, my voicemail, and since I didn't hear from you, I assumed that it was okay for me to do with your money whatever I wanted. But I have never lost sight of the fact that it all belongs to you. And if there's anything specific that you want me to do with it, by all means, let me know. How long would it take you to fire that guy? Well, you're going to do it right away because he's not managing your money well. He is interpreting your silence as permission to squander it. That is inexcusably poor management. And that's why it's insufficient to simply acknowledge that God owns our stuff. He expects us to manage it well, not passively waiting for some voice from the sky that gives us specific instructions on what to do with it, but proactively. He wants us to make decisions. He wants us to make investments that we believe he himself would make if he were managing his own money. And we say, I don't want that responsibility. Too bad. Every disciple gets it. Every single one of us will be held accountable for what we do with God's stuff. And we might be afraid of that, but that's actually where it should be good news. 
Because if we do it right, we'll be rewarded for it. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest, or literally whoever is unrighteous with very little, will also be unrighteous with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So according to Jesus, entrusting us with money is a relatively small risk for God. He's just testing us to see if we can be trusted with much more valuable things. Over in Luke 19, Jesus tells another parable about a king who gave the same amount of money to ten different people, a mina, worth a few thousand dollars uh, today. And he said, put this money to work until I come back. And in the story, nine out of ten did that. And when the king came back, he, he gave them rewards for this. Like for every mina, they started with a mina, for every mina they earned, the king gave them charge of, of a whole city. So one guy got ten, he, he started with one, ended up with ten, and, and the, he got ten cities to manage. The only person in that parable that was reprimanded was the one who took the mina and buried it in the ground and didn't invest it at all. So, so our management of money is the way that God knows how many things of real value he can put us in charge of in heaven. And, verse 12, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, whose property? God's property. Then who will give you property of your own? So, you see, it's our management of what God owns here that determines what we will own in heaven. I know that sounds strange to us. Really, what part of this passage doesn't? But Jesus said that heavenly riches and significant eternal responsibilities await those of us who are good and faithful managers of the money and possessions that God has entrusted to us on the earth. Okay, now, this raises a really practical question. How can we do this well? How can we invest God's stuff in a way that pleases Him? What does He want us to invest in? I'll give you a one-word answer. People. Why people? Because people will outlive our possessions. Possessions are temporary, but people are eternal. Look at verse 9. This is Christ's answer to the question of how to wisely invest the wealth that God has entrusted to us. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now again, that sounds like something that we wouldn't expect Jesus to say. I mean, use money to make friends? Really? Yep. But what kind of friends? Friends who will last forever. Friends who one day will welcome you into their eternal dwellings. Well, what kind of friends can do that? And who exactly is Jesus telling us to befriend through generosity? Some Bible scholars think that the word friends, there in verse 9, refers to God. And, and the reason that it's plural is just to make it consistent with the multiple people that the manager befriends in the story. 
And that may be true. In fact, Jesus told a parable back in Luke 12 about a farmer whose harvest was so abundant that his barns were too small to store all the grain. And rather than sharing the windfall with others, he just built bigger barns so that he could hoard the extra. But little did he know that he was actually living his last day on planet Earth. He was going to die that night. And God called him a fool for being so selfish and so short-sighted. And then Jesus ended the story by saying, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So Jesus may be saying here in Luke 16:9 that we should use worldly wealth to make God our friend so that when it is gone, he will welcome us into his eternal dwelling. Now, I just want to stop there for a second because that might sound like he would be saying that the way that we get into heaven is by investing wealth for God. And we know that that's not true. We know that that the reason that Jesus came to this earth was because there was nothing that we could do to earn our way into heaven. That it's a gift that he gives us by his grace. But there are many passages that talk about how when we have been saved by God's grace, that changes who we are. It changes everything about us. In fact, it changes even the way that we will use our money and our possessions. So maybe, maybe that's what he's saying here. That you, we need to be transformed to the point that it actually changes what we do with, with stuff. But still, that leaves us with the question, what does richness toward God look like? And I think that question will lead us right back to the truth that God wants us to invest in people. What kind of people? Well, for sure, those who are poor. No doubt about that. Um, you, You know what comes right after this story in Luke 16? The next story that Jesus tells is about a rich man who dies and goes to hell and a poor man who dies and goes to heaven. For whatever reason, and Luke, the, the Gospel of Luke has this all throughout, that those who are materially poor tend to be more open to the message of God's grace than do the affluent. Back in Luke 6, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke 18, he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So when we go to heaven, um, we are way more likely to have neighbors who were poor on earth than those who were wealthy on earth. And if we give to the poor now, they will welcome us into their mansions later to thank us for being generous to them rather than using our wealth to increase our own comfort and luxury. That may be what Jesus is saying here. But I think the best interpretation of Luke 16, 9 is that Jesus is advising us to be generous to lost people. I know that word lost might sound like a condescending label to put on another person, but that's the word that Jesus used Throughout chapter 15, I mean, right before this passage, he told back-to-back-to-back parables about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son, and they all had the exact same point, that there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And Jesus said in Luke 19 that he came into this world to seek and to save the lost. 
And I think the picture that he's painting here in verse 9 of chapter 16 is of people who had lost their way, but then repented and put their faith in him, at least partly because they felt his love through our generosity toward them. And when we get to heaven, there are going to be people who invite us into their mansions and they are going to say to us, thank you so much that you were willing to invest money that you could have spent on yourself to help me experience the love of God. That changed the whole direction of my life. It opened my heart to the gospel. It was because of your generosity that I am in heaven instead of hell for all eternity. That's the power that investments, financial investments, can make. Right now I'm reading a book that was written by Bob Russell. He's a retired pastor. The book is called After 50 Years of Ministry. And in it he shares seven things that he would do differently if he could start his ministry all over again. And chapter 6 is entitled, I'd be more generous to individuals both inside and outside the church. And in that chapter, Russell tells a true story about a group of pastors who went out to dinner together. And one of the bolder ones said to the waiter at the end of the meal, we're a bunch of preachers, and uh, we appreciate you serving us tonight. We want to ask you if there is anything we can pray for you before we leave. And the waiter responded, well, as a matter of fact, there is. My wife recently had some fairly serious health problems and has lost her job. As a result, we're $487 behind on our gas and electric bill. If we don't pay it by the end of the week, our electricity is going to be turned off. Would you pray that God would somehow supply that need? And so the pastors all prayed for him. Waiter thanked them. He walked away. And those men started putting cash on the table until they had collected $150. And then one of them said, I'll make up the difference so that we can give him $487. And that kind of shamed the rest of them. So they kept digging into their pockets. And when all was said and done, they left that waiter a $487 tip. About a year later, one of them went back to the same restaurant. He was hoping to see that same waiter there, but he wasn't working that night. And after the meal, the pastor asked the young woman who was serving him, could you tell me what's the biggest tip any server in this restaurant has ever received? She said, you wouldn't believe it. A bunch of preachers were in here last year, and they prayed with a waiter and then left him a $487 tip. And she added, would you pray for me? (laughs) Bob Russell says, I guarantee you that today, when the employees in that restaurant think about Christian preachers, they think of them in a more positive light than a year ago. That's using worldly wealth to make friends for ourselves. It's also softening hearts to receive the seed of the gospel. I think one of the reasons that story impacted me is because I used to be a waiter. And the meal that none of the servers at my restaurant wanted to work was Sunday lunch. And that was because that was when Christians came in after church to eat lunch. It was the one meal during the week when they got the worst tips. In fact, sometimes... Instead of tips, they got a tract, a little gospel tract. Think they were excited to read it? See, stinginess just hardens hearts. 
but generosity softens hearts. What an amazing thing that we can impact the eternal destiny of people by how generously we manage the money and possessions that God has entrusted to us. Okay, but what does all this have to do with raising money to build a permanent church facility in a strategic location? Well, let me be clear about this. Don't miss this. We are not building it for ourselves. I know everybody wants to have a church that they can call their own. We don't have to meet in that gym anymore. Now we have a place of our own. That's not what this is about at all. No, our vision is to create a place where we can reach as many of the 50,000 people who live in this region northeast of Portland as possible. See, we're going to invest in expensive property, property that is accessible to people in all the towns where we live. And we are going to build a facility there that is not for us, but for them. And when we get to heaven, those who will have heard the gospel in that building or those who will have heard the gospel from someone who was equipped to share their faith in that building are going to welcome us into their eternal dwellings and they are going to say to us that they are forever thankful that we were willing to invest money in them that we could have spent on ourselves. That's what this is about. And that doesn't change the fact that it's challenging for us. I mean, this stuff that I've talked about today, some of you are looking at me like with deer, deer in the headlights. Like, are you serious what you're saying this morning? But you know that I've just told you what Jesus said. And, and we're going to wrestle with that. We're going to struggle with that. And um, we're all kind of dealing with this challenge in different ways. thought it might help if we could show you, and we're going to do this throughout the rest of the series, just show you some people in the church who are going through this process with you to kind of see what, what, what they're thinking, how they're processing it. And so I want to um, just have you watch with me a video here from the, where we interviewed Bill and Beth Erickson. Watch this. And I'm Bill Erickson, and right now I'm leading the Wednesday morning men's group. We moved here from Colorado. I'm really excited about the initiative. Um, I think it's just an exciting time um, for me personally, for our church, for the communities that um, we're going to have an impact on. Um, I know for me, when, I, when I've been involved in other types of campaigns in churches, and we have been in the past, um, there's always been a level of uh, I, trepidation um, or fear of what, what am I going to have to contribute or what, what's the, um, the stress that I'm going to have to incur to, to support it. And this has just been, this is the next right step for the church. I'm very sure of that in terms of me individually. Um, you know, my first thoughts were, yes, I can't wait to be involved in this. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. There's there's no fear. There's only excitement. And I know that God is, is telling me personally to step in, to get involved, um, to just take that next step, whatever that is, in support of God first. Peppered throughout Scripture is the idea of tithe, giving back to the local church, giving back to, to the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
it's been an opportunity for us to witness what we call God math. You know, we, we decide at one point, we look at our giving and we're giving this much, and we decided that we're going to give more at some point. And you, you think of how that's going to impact your cash flow and your bank account. But after several months of increasing the giving, you realize our bank account is still fine and our cash flow is still fine and we're not missing anything. How does that add up? Right. You know, we punch a bigger hole in the funnel, so to speak, by increasing the giving, yet the funnel still fills up the same. Yeah. It's been challenging sometimes, um, struggling with um, the idol of money and what you think you're not going to have and what others might have. But um, like you said, it, it doesn't matter. Um, God has always provided. We've really not ever wanted for anything. He's provided everything we need. Uh, at the last Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit, John Maxwell did it an, did, made a very simple statement. He said that our ceiling is God's floor. Where our ability stops is where God's ability starts to kick in. And if we're uncomfortable, if we don't feel like we have the ability to do it, that's when you're going to see God show up. And it'll, it'll have challenges. I don't have any illusions about that. It, the nature of, the, of our services is going to change. You know, the, the feel is going to change. But, I don't know, change is something that's a constant in life. So you either embrace it and get excited and, and step into it, or you're constantly living in fear. I'll choose to step into it. I really love their fearlessness. You know, they've been through this before. Uh, many of us have not. And so those of us who haven't wonder what's it going to be like. And Bill and Beth say, we've been through it before. It was good. And we're excited to do it again. That's, that's cool. We've, you know, we've, we've really um, talked about some very challenging stuff in these last two weeks. Right? We said we were going to. We're going to start with our hearts. We're going to start with that core commitment. And what Jesus has said to us so far in this series is that if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness by, among other things, investing the wealth that he has entrusted to us in lost people, and God will supply all of our needs, and we will be greeted by a lot of grateful people in heaven. Maybe you think of that song that was written way back in 1988 by Ray Bolts. It's been used uh, for church fundraisers ever since. It's about a dream of going to heaven and finally seeing the difference that our sacrifices will have made in the lives of others. And the lyrics include, one by one they came as far as the eye could see, each one somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices made, unnoticed on the earth, heaven now proclaims. As Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord, he said, my child, look around you, for great is your reward. Father, thank you that that that's true, that that is foresight into what it's going to be like for us one day when we stand before you, and um, that you will richly reward us way beyond what we deserve for um, the way that we have been faithful to you on earth. And we thank you by faith that you're challenging us in this particular area in our lives right now, not because you want to take something from us, 
but because of what you want to give to us. So help us to lean into it. Help us not to run from it. We trust that you have our best in mind. So may your spirit continue to just uh, work in our hearts, in our minds, so that we go in the direction that you want us to go. In Jesus' name, amen.